Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. More Americans are becoming familiar with cannabis as more U.S. states legalize its recreational use. However, what many people don't know is that cannabis has a long and complex history dating back thousands of years. Cannabis is actually one of the most ancient drugs that we know about. Of course, we find it buried in graves back to the Neolithic period, which tens of thousands of years. But of course, we don't really know what it was doing at that time. That's Dr. Richard Miller, a professor of pharmacology at Northwestern University's Feinberg School of Medicine. Miller says written accounts beginning at around 2500 B.C. help paint a better picture of the early history of cannabis and its cultural prevalence. In the very earliest pharmacopoeias that books about drugs, like we find in ancient China, and also the Rig Veda, which is the ancient book of Hinduism, and the Avesta, which is the ancient book of Zoroastrianism, all these well, you know, hundreds of years BC, we find them referring to cannabis as a drug and as a very useful drug, which is suggested to be used for all kinds of things. Some of these uses include treating inflammation, chronic pain, epilepsy, amongst other ailments. During this time, the drug was widely seen throughout Asia, including countries such as China, India, and Iran, as well as in remote areas like Siberia. While cannabis use was predominant throughout Asia in early centuries, the drug did not make its way into Europe until much later. The British had a very large presence in India, and so they encountered people in India using cannabis, and that's one of the ways it came back into Europe. Then Napoleon's troops were in Egypt, where there was cannabis used quite a bit. And so that's another route by which it came back into Europe. Despite these channels, the drug did not gain a recreational and medicinal foothold in Europe until the beginning of the 19th century, when opiate use was also on the rise. We have books like Thomas de Quince's The Confessions of an English Opium Eater. And we had people in Paris who started taking drugs recreationally. And so, as I say, it started really with opiates, but then cannabis quickly became part of that whole recreational drug-taking phenomenon. So how did cannabis finally come to popularity in the United States? Miller points to one American author who wrote a book in 1857 publicizing the then largely unknown drug. There was a man called Fitzhugh Ludlow from Poughkeepsie, New York, who wrote a famous book called The Hashish Eater and it helped to introduce cannabis into this country. And it wasn't illegal at all. I mean, far from it. You could buy bottles of tincture of cannabis from the big drug companies like Eli Lilly. You can still find those bottles around today. It was very widely available. And you could buy candies that were hashish candies. 
But by the 1930s, with the country overwhelmed by the Great Depression, the political stance toward marijuana quickly shifted in the U.S. Prior to that, you'd had a lot of workers come in from Mexico to help with picking the crops in the southwest of the United States. They were considered to be very helpful. But then when the Depression hit in the late 20s and early 30s, the attitude towards these people turned around and it became an attitude of, well, now they're taking our jobs. So the Mexicans that came in had a Spanish word for cannabis, which was marijuana. And what happened was exactly at that time, the United States government had set up something called the Federal Bureau of Narcotics, which was headed by a man called Harry Anslinger. Harry Anslinger wanted to have some project that illustrated how useful this new agency was for protecting the citizens of the United States. And he decided, well, I'll go after cannabis because it's just associated with these Mexican workers and nobody cares about them at all. The political propaganda and discrimination continued from there as Anzinger focused on a nationwide crackdown on cannabis. Miller says Anzinger invented stories about its negative properties and took advantage of racial tensions to fearmonger. He would say things like, black people take it and then they rape white women because they get into a sexual frenzy, all kinds of things. It was actually remarkable. I mean, if you go back and look at the movies that he made and the um, newspaper articles that came out, they're quite staggering from our current perspective. So... Really, the laws prescribing cannabis, they come from that time. And they were based completely on things that were absolutely not true and very racist politics as well. And as cannabis use increased in the 1960s and 70s with the rise of the hippie counterculture, it ultimately led President Richard Nixon to pass the Controlled Substances Act, which labeled it as a Schedule I drug. The law deemed cannabis to be extremely dangerous and addictive with no medicinal use, putting it in the same category as heroin, ecstasy, and LSD, where under federal law, it still remains today. But are there long-term risks to consuming the drug? Miller says its wide-ranging use throughout history has proven otherwise. The experiment on long-term effects of cannabis has really already been done. And it's always proven to be the case that it's not really dangerous. I mean, obviously, you will find some people, there are always examples of a few people who will overdo it, or human genetic variability is very, very great. And there obviously are people who will respond badly to cannabis like there are people who respond badly to any drug. If you think about a country like the Netherlands, Holland, where cannabis taking has been pretty much legal since 1970, there hasn't been a tsunami of terrible diseases that we've noticed in the Netherlands during that time. Despite cannabis and heroin being classified into the same Schedule I category, Miller says that from a pharmacology perspective, the two are vastly different. The opioid crisis is a much more problematic thing than the general use of cannabis. There you have a drug which, or drugs which are extremely dangerous and very addictive. I mean, one thing to understand about cannabis is that it's not very addictive. I mean, I wouldn't say it's not addictive at all, but addiction runs the gamut from drugs being extremely addictive to maybe a little bit. Things like opiates, 
very addictive. Alcohol is very addictive. Nicotine is very addictive. Cannabis is not very addictive really at all. Miller argues that there are several factors feeding into the public's negative perception of cannabis. I think when it comes to drugs, and I obviously deal with this all the time and I talk to people, there's a huge amount of ignorance about what these drugs are and what they do. And what happened, as I said, in 1970, all these drugs were like thrown into the same category together. And I think people more or less still have that mindset. It goes back to, you know, the Nixon government in the 1970s that, well, they're all the same. However, this mindset is slowly changing as more states pass legalization. The last 60, 70 years with cannabis being illegal since 1930 or so is abnormal in terms of history. In other words, what we've been living through is the abnormal time, not the normal time. The normal time is the thousands of years before 1930 and the time that's coming now in medicine, where I think we will see the emergence of cannabis use as it'll become just part of the general usage of drugs that we have. As far as recreational use, I suspect it'll just become a fairly well-accepted thing in Western societies where people will take it as an alternative sometimes to alcohol or nicotine or other things. To find out more about Dr. Richard Miller and the history of cannabis, visit viewpointsradio.org. For more behind the scenes, check out Viewpoints Radio on Instagram and Twitter. This segment originally ran in March of 2020 and was written and produced by executive producer Amira Zaveri. Our production manager is Jason Dickey. I'm Marty Peterson. Viewpoints returns in just a moment. Coming up next week. So one of the long-term goals of extrasolar planet research is to find that kind of planet that could host life. How high-res telescopes are leading the way in this search. Then... If you don't know how to play soccer and you don't appreciate the intricacies of the game, then you're bored watching people pass the ball around in the field and apparently nothing happening. Why does everyone but the U.S. seem to love soccer? I'm Marty Peterson. And I'm Gary Price. These stories in-depth on your public affairs magazine, Viewpoints. That's Viewpoints for this week. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram to learn more about upcoming shows and find a library of past programs on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify. Plus, you'll always find previous segments and more information about our guests at viewpointsradio.org. Join us again next week for another edition of Viewpoints. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.